Welcome to IPR Radio. I am Shanjay Mukherjee. Today we speak to Mr. Tarun Sridhar, former Secretary, Ministry of Fisheries, Animal Husbandry and Dairying, Government of India. With his vast expertise and rich experience in shaping policies, Mr. Sridhar will bring invaluable insights into this conversation. After the break. In the orchestra of life, each creature plays a part. At Sapiens, we see the web of life where the health of animals reverberates through ecosystems and societies. With innovative technologies, we're redefining the future of agribusiness, sustainably enhancing productivity and profitability. We don't just dream of a better future, we make it. Food safety, quality and security. These aren't just words. They're our mission. We're sapiens. And we're committed to healthier animals because we believe in healthier living. Be a part of our melody. And together, let's compose a better world. For more information about our products and solutions, log into sapiensagree.com. Good morning, Mr. Sridhar, and welcome to IPR Radio. Good morning. Good morning. It's my pleasure to be here with you. It's a real pleasure for us to have you on the show today. Thank you. Sir, you've played a pivotal role in shaping the policies that govern the animal husbandry and fisheries uh, sectors in the country. Today, we request you on this show to critique some of the key policies, give us examples of some successful models followed in other countries, and shed some light on the path ahead for these uh, industries. Our first question to you, sir, today is how would you describe the current state of animal husbandry and fisheries policies? And what do you see as the key strengths and weaknesses of these policies? Okay, thank you for this opportunity, Sanjoy. And I'm glad that we are having this discussion on a sector which oft has been neglected or generally pushed to the margins. Uh, well, many people who have interacted with me in formal and informal gatherings in the past uh, would recollect that I'm very fond of uh, quoting from uh, Charles Dickens' A Tale of Two Cities when I describe uh, the livestock and fishery sector in the country. It's uh, one of the most beautiful opening lines of any work of fiction. He says, it was the best of times, it was the worst of times, it was a spring of hope, it was a summer of despair. So this is uh, very aptly describes uh, the livestock and uh, fisheries sector uh, in our country. How, how and how do I uh, draw this analogy? We are huge. We are we are not only big, we are the biggest in the world as far as the sheer size of our livestock sector is concerned. But at the same time, we are also the smallest in terms of the productivity of our livestock sector is concerned. In terms of production, we are either at the top or near the top in almost each and every livestock product. But in terms of the value and quality of that product, we are somewhere in the bottom of the pyramid. So this is a very peculiar uh, situation and a very unique characteristic of our livestock. Now, having said that, let it not be a criticism or disparaging the livestock sector in, in our country. The beauty of the livestock sector in this country is that this uh, humongous production of livestock product is all contributed by extremely small and marginal livestock uh, farmers. Uh, barring the poultry subsector of the overall livestock sector, which uh, to a great extent is uh, vertically integrated and uh, organized, 
albeit there may be some inadequacies in our integration model but it is by and large uh, organized rest of the livestock sector is uh, is characterized by very very small livestock holders and these small livestock holders are contributing to our livestock production which becomes the biggest in the world i think milk is the shiniest example and again i normally i compare our milk production to the to the milky way in the galaxy and appropriately said milky way you open a half liter polypack uh, half liter that polythene pack of milk or 1 liter polypack uh, of milk that uh, half liter would probably be having uh, drop some hundred of cattle owned by hundreds of uh, farmers that is these small farmers owning one or two cattle the typical uh, holding is between two, it's, it's less than three average holding per livestock farmer or in terms of cattle and buffaloes is between two and three it is uh, less than three and slightly more more than two and the average uh, production is about 3 to 4 liters a, a day it is this farmer who is uh, whose cow and buffalo is bringing uh, milk to your home so it's like how the milky galaxy is comprised of millions of stars that is what your milk packet is comprises of so okay. it is these farmers who have made us the biggest milk producer in the world and biggest by volumes the i think the latest data says that we produce uh, more than 210 million tons of milk per per annum this was the production has been uh, during the last year number 2 in terms of global production is united states of america which is less than 100 million tons so number 2 is half of us so it's it's like uh, you have just beaten them by by we are my miles ahead of them but having said that what is the value which this milk is generating in terms of the livelihood in terms of the income of the farmers that is the area of of concern so this is the, the background which i want thought and this context must be set when we try to understand the livestock sector in in our country second very peculiar feature of the livestock in our country a feature which does not exist anywhere in the world barring a few countries of south asia and barring a few african countries is the mixed farming systems in our country we are predominantly an agrarian society everybody admits it a very large uh, population is uh, dependent upon uh, more than 50 to 60% of our workforce is dependent upon agriculture and allied uh, ac- activities uh, for their livelihoods mixed farming means that you don't find a farmer hardly any farmer who does not own livestock also similarly you don't have many livestock farmers who do not do crop farming also so because this is a there's a mixed farming system there's a very close symbiotic relationship between the agriculture sector and the livestock sector which necessarily does not exist in the western world or in the countries which do industrial livestock farming or the industrial livestock production so because we do not have industrial production it is a small farmer so typically a small farmer would have one or two acres of land two or three cattle and buffalo a few poultry birds a, a few goats etc so that this mixed farming system keeps the the hearth uh, burning in the in the in the house or now you can say lpg burning burning in the house and, and also give the farmer the income to to bring up his family so this is how the livestock sector in this country gets characterized because of this the livestock sector is dominated by a very sound and robust traditional knowledge and practices and these traditional knowledges and practices have held our livestock sector in very very good stead and now we have a support of very very sound and very advanced uh, research institutions uh, of the government as also some very very few 
in the non-governmental sector also. Very strong support of the ICAR network, that is Indian Council for Agriculture Research, which has probably you name a name a field and name a discipline in livestock and fisheries, and they have a research and development institution to give the backup to our livestock sector. So this is how I would characterize the livestock sector in our in our country. Now I think I am uh, taking more time than you gave me, but still, no, 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 mentioned mention policies. Now, policy has to be something very dynamic and it has to keep evolving and especially keep evolving in today's world, wherein uh, the geographical boundaries or the political boundaries of the country do not carry as much weightage and relevance in terms of uh, economic activities of the countries as they used to in the past. In the past, we used always used to talk in terms of self-reliance or uh, small units being uh, self-reliant independent economies. We had the model of village being self-sufficient, etc. Now, this model does not uh, does not uh, hold as good as it did in the past in terms of an economic philosophy. Now, there's a huge interdependence of uh, trade and the movement of, uh, of goods. And typically, livestock being a part of the food production system, there has to be a greater interchangeability of uh, goods and the products between countries or, or between states, states etc. So that is where we need our policies also to be dynamic and evolving and evolving and responding to the situation very fast and not only responding, even anticipating how things will, will develop so that our policy keep our, keep our livestock sector competitive. And that is, I think, where we are a bit, uh, bit uh, lagging behind. Yeah. Why we are lagging behind is there is a, I'm not justifying it, it's, it's just, but just way to understand that we have a historical legacy. When we became independent in 1947, we, we did not have many models of governance to, to emulate, especially in sectors like livestock sectors, which were way down in the governance and political priorities. So what we did was because of having a society, having, having a country which was always grappling with the deficiencies or inadequacies, especially deficiencies and inadequacies in terms of food availability, our entire focus was on enhancement of production. So our focus of uh, the entire food sector, be it wheat, be it rice, be it uh, milk, etc., was more milk, more wheat, more milk, more wheat. It was production, production, production. So that is how we have been, we have grown with. Unfortunately, today also when we should have now branched away from production to productivity, from absolute quantity to quality, from numbers or volume to value, that shift has not really happened. And that is, I would say, while our policy in terms of enhancing production and in terms of ensuring that we become globally very competitive in terms of uh, our size of the livestock and in terms of our absolute numbers of production and we remain at the, at the top or near the top, quality and value is one issue which our policies now need to address. And lastly, in response to your first question, when I say quality and value, I say it has to be computed in terms, in economic terms of return per unit effort. Economic terms, it is, it is the return on your investment. Now, here investment, I would say, is not only the financial investment which a farmer has made into livestock, but also investment in terms of his own labor and in terms of his own right. commitment. Because here, uh, the typically livestock, the, the labor of the farmer is something we don't compute. So I would say per unit effort for every one liter of milk a farmer is producing, 
how much effort in terms of his financial and other resources is going on and what is the the return the livestock is giving him so we have to think in terms of economic terms we have to think in terms of commercial terms and we have to think in terms of livestock as a viable alternative vocation and occupation not just merely a source of livelihood i hope i have i have been able to respond uh, to your initial uh, query proposed to me absolutely sir thank you so sir in your opinion what are some of the uh, key objectives uh, that should be prioritized in the animal husbandry and fisheries policies to ensure that these sectors have a great future ahead a promising future ahead okay let let me say irrespective of how government responds or how how the public sector responds whether our policies are good sound or maybe sometimes not good enough my understanding of the livestock and fishery sector is that uh, future is very bright and good why do i say that i say that future is good and bright because uh, it has captured the imagination of several of urban entrepreneurs also it is no longer considered only to be an activity confined to rural areas so people in the urban areas young boys and girls and some iit iim graduates have also gone into the dealing with or venturing into enterprises dealing with livestock sector products having said that it is only limited to certain niche areas in terms of value added products or in terms of creating markets as far as livestock sector is concerned now in terms of uh, public policy and uh, which should address the major challenges that is the livestock sector to ensure that livestock sector continues on its uh, growth path which it has attained so far uh, you you are aware and I, i'm sure every one else who would be listening to this uh, podcast uh, or maybe interacting in some other way would know that uh, if you take the entire omnibus agriculture sector it is only the livestock uh, sub sector of dairy poultry fish uh, goatry etc which has been consistently recording an impressive growth rate of between 6% to 11 to 12% your meat sector is going at 12% poultry has grown at 8% or so milk has always grown at 6% whereas the crop husbandry that is the pure agriculture has by and large been stagnant around 2% 2 and a half 2 and a half 3 and if 3 is some has been considered to be highly impressive so the so livestock sector has 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 pro- proven to be a backbone of, of the larger agriculture sector in terms of ensuring consistency in growth there never has been setback as far as the growth rates uh, are uh, concerned but the biggest challenge right now of of our livestock sector is that we have not been able to create effective value and supply chains in our livestock sector leading to huge wastage and loss the well wastage is uh, food waste is typically a western phenomena where the phenomena of a surplus or affluence wherein you can afford to well buy or hold uh, more than what you require and it goes waste but food loss as much as one third of the food which we produce gets lost either it gets lost completely on account of non availability of a good effective supply chain or it gets lost in terms of its value because of the delay between uh, its harvest and its reaching the table and loss in value could be complete loss in value or it could be a partial loss in value it could be a loss in 
terms of monetary value, it could be lost in terms of nutritional value. So first, the biggest challenge of uh, our livestock sector is be it milk or milk products, be it fish or uh, be it uh, poultry or meat or eggs or any livestock product is that we have the market, here is the market with the consumer, here is the production center. How to bridge the gap and the distance between them, not the physical distance, the distance of time. And during that, dis that distance of time, whether it takes one day or one hour or one month or one year, how do we maintain the quality of the livestock product which uh, is that? One. Secondly, the challenge before us is uh, that when we talk in terms of uh, value and supply chains, we are typically thinking in terms of processed products, processing the raw product into something something else just to increase its uh, shelf value. Well, good enough. Value-added products do fetch a very high market, uh, high price on the market. But at the same time, we also have our traditional... Sorry, just a second. We also have our traditional, uh, what we call wet markets. You see, food is food is just not something you eat to stay alive. Food is also a very integral part of your culture. Right now, we're discussing livestock. If we were to discussing the, say, the tradition and culture of India, I'm sure food would be a very important component very important of, part of, of, absolutely. of that discussion. And one of the, one of the very critical uh, traits and characteristics of our culture in terms of food is freshness. Even today, Sanjo, I don't know whether you do it or not. In my house, even although I have worked in the dairy sector, everything, the pasteurized milk which comes from the market is boiled before it is consumed. Absolutely. Now, if, if you talk to a dairy technologist or a dairy specialist, he'll say it is ridiculous. You are actually converting your milk into powder. Partially powder. <laughs> and then consuming. But yeah. I'll give you a small snippet. A long time back, it was I think in the year 1998 or 99. That time I was... Uh, performing the role of a trainer of civil servants. And I had taken a group of uh, civil servants from all across country to UK for a training in the Civil Services College of UK. So we, there was a group of 18 people. And on day one of their stay in the hostel there, each had his own independent room, etc. 15 out of 18 rooms, their cattle had uh, gone bad, the, the cattle which heats the water, etc. So we complained that none of the cattle, all the cattle have, have, well, are not working. None of the 15 rooms, cattle are not working, something seriously wrong. And then uh, they couldn't find the reason why, why it has happened that there was all the cattle suddenly stopped working. Then they found that uh, our people had boiled milk in that. Milk in that. The, 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 <laughs> the kettle is meant for water. It was not meant for, meant for milk. milk. Who, who, who eats milk in a, in a kettle? But we kind of cannot imagine consuming milk without uh, it having been boiled. So this is ingrained, ingrained in our culture. In fact, uh, if there were not strict uh, municipal laws uh, against keeping cattle, etc., in uh, in big towns, people would still prefer going to the milkman or milkman delivering fresh milk. Even I live in Gurgaon, even in a place like Gurgaon, I find in many of our neighbors' houses in the morning a milkman comes and gives fresh milk. So what I would say is, when we talk in terms of uh, preventing food loss, we also have to reinvent these uh, wet markets and our concept of freshness and ensure that our our product to satisfy the consumer in terms of what he demands. So one third of the food getting uh, lost is something. I would say it is it is it it, it is criminal proportions in a, in a country like uh, yeah, India. Nice. 
So that is another thing which we need to address in terms of our policies. But here it becomes a challenge because it is not only the Ministry of Fisheries, Animal Husbandry and Dairy which comes into picture. It is also the Ministry of Industries, Ministry of Food Processing, etc. So we need a very strong uh, coordinating mechanism in the government wherein the issues and challenges of the livestock sector get addressed in, in what to say, in conjunction and in, in, in a harmonious coordination vis-a-vis the cross-sectoral ministries and, and uh, departments. That is the second biggest uh, challenge. Now, once you address this, you come to the issue of quality. Now, when we, you see, there was a, recently there was an apprehension that on account of some free trade agreements, once the dairy products from abroad start coming in, it would uh, seriously dent our dairy. Now, that time I used to question, I said, okay, I, I, their apprehension and the, this fear is well-founded. If, say, New Zealand or Australia or European countries they, or USA, they start exporting milk products in India, it would pose a serious threat to our dairy. But why can't our dairy be competitive in terms of why should they feel threatened that we are the biggest producer of milk in the world? So why should US and New Zealand not feel threatened if our milk products are going there? Why they are not threatened is because in quality, our milk products uh, will not be able to match or which will be able to which will be acceptable to the to the consumer in New Zealand or consumer in the European Union. So once we address this issue of addressing food loss, so that means you, you address the issue of food loss, then you can start in terms of enhancing the quality, enhancing the quality both of your raw raw material and enhancing the productive quality of your value added product or the converted product of milk. Quality is a second issue which we need to address very seriously. Thirdly, how do you address value and quality both is traceability. You see, the, the discerning consumer today, even in urban areas in India is asking, I know many people asking, is my milk coming from this cow, stray cow who's roaming around on the road and eating polythene and whatnot. And I know this cow is owned by someone in the nearby village. It just comes here in the evening during the day, chews on whatever gets the garbage and etc. goes back. Is my milk coming from that cow? Now, in organized dairies, and I think typically between 20 to 25% of our milk is organized. In organized dairies, we have been able to affect uh, traceability up to a collection center. If the milk uh, which has gone into this particular pouch has come from these three or four or five collection centers, or maybe one collection center. But that collection center itself may be having milk from 100 cattle or 100 buffaloes, etc. So this, unless we uh, have this traceability, we will never be able, no matter how great the quality is, the, we will not be able to certify that quality and we will not be able to ensure that quality to the consumer unless we establish this great, good traceability. I'm very happy to inform that in terms of creating this uh, uh, database of animals, but through that information network of animal health and productivity, I think nearly more than 25 crore animals have already been uh, database has already been created. Okay. Once this database of the entire livestock, including well, cattle buffalo, yes, in the first phase it was to be cattle buffalo, but after cattle buffalo, even if goat, sheep, sheep, etc. Is, is created, thereafter we should ensure that since we have data of each and every animal, this traceability to an animal of your milk, even the ice cream you are consuming or a chocolate you are consuming, you should be able to say this chocolate contains milk of a cow so such and such in such and such district owned by such and such farmer. And this is the kind of traceability which exists now all over the advanced and the developed world. And this is the kind of a product 
assurance, quality assurance. It is the kind of integrity of the product which gets uh, gets uh, certified. This is an other issue which would be this thing. Lastly, which I would say is uh, the most critical and important thing is we need to reduce the size of our livestock and increase the productivity. Now, today we are producing, when we, we take pride in the fact that we are producing more than 210 million tons of milk. And then we also are, have, a, have a very smug smile on our face that USA is less than 100 million tons, but way behind us. But look at the number of cattle, number of buffaloes which are used to produce this 210 million tons of milk. Perhaps in terms of even average productivity, I'm not talking in terms of great productivity, even in terms of average productivity, one-fourth the number of cattle and buffaloes should be producing this 210 million tons of milk. Now, if we do that, look at the, the, the transformation of the economies of uh, the economics of livestock uh, sector and production. So, you see, very interestingly, whenever you talk of livestock sector, you see any government, it starts with, we, we produce 210 million tons of milk. We produce 15 million tons of fish. We produce so many billions egg. We never talk in terms of, we produce milk so much these many rupees or dollars. So, we have, our policies have totally now shift the focus from the, the size of production or the quantity of production to the value of production. Value. Now, farmer should be told, don't tell ki my, my, I have got a cow, I have got one cow and it gives me 5 liters of milk. You say, I have got a cow, it gives me 500 rupees a day. That is how, you, once you have this kind of a paradigm shift in perspective and in terms of approaching livestock sector, I think it, it could get, uh, uh, get, get, it could actually transform into uh, what I always say, a, a profession of hope, a vocation of uh, choice, a young boy and girl, when you ask a question, what do you want to become? When you grow up or when you finish, finish your education, he or she, instead of saying, I want to become a doctor, I want to become an engineer, I want to become a civil servant, we say, I want to become a livestock farmer, I want to open a poultry farm, I open a dairy, I want to do aquaculture. And uh, industrial poultry models are existing in this country. Aquaculture, especially shrimp aquaculture, even freshwater aquaculture. Now, you have enterprises, entrepreneurs, and uh, huge enterprises which are, which are uh, doing well. So, I think these are some of the challenges and issues which we need to address in our in our policies. And lastly, one thing which is the livestock sector in terms of policies and interventions and research has by and large been government and public sector driven. Right. Government needs to engage the private sector a lot. And Sanjay, you know much better that, that in terms of poultry sector, the kind of knowledge, the kind of knowledge, uh, the scientific knowledge, the management knowledge and expertise which is available in the private sector, just does not exist in government. It doesn't even exist in our ICAR network of research, etc., the kind of experience and expertise which your big poultry houses have. So we need to, we need to establish this good blend of uh, exchange of knowledge and involve the private sector in terms of shaping our uh, livestock policies. We'll be back after a short commercial break. That is a wake-up call against the growing shadow of antibiotic resistance over our poultry, our health, and our world. To fight this menace, Excelsio, a natural antibiotic free performance enhancer, marshals an army of bacteriophages. 
each engineered by evolution to engage a specific bacterial adversary. Excelsio uses a cocktail of bacteriophages that protects your flock against various strains of Salmonella, E. coli, Clostridium, Perfringens, and Staphylococcus aureus. Excelsio is more than a product. It's our shield against antimicrobial resistance. It's our stand for a safer, healthier future. For more information about our products and solutions, log into sapiensagri.com. So I'll just lead this question into the next discussion, which is uh, what are some of the potential strategies or initiatives that can be implemented to improve uh, animal welfare standards in the industry? Because that's quite key today. While maintaining productivity, we talked about productivity. So while maintaining productivity or improving productivity, how can animal welfare be incorporated in our sectors? That I had written an article for your magazine on this animal welfare, <laughs> welfare issue. It's a very, very sensitive issue and I'm, I'm a bit wary of uh, expressing my views very forthrightly. See, well, first we have to define what we mean by animal welfare. Now, animal welfare, uh, is it a, a sentimental issue or is it a purely a matter of principle in terms of uh, some minimum standards in terms of how we deal and how we treat our uh, animals? Just on the side, I was reading, just in the morning, I was just glancing through uh, uh, papers. It was non-serious reading. I think I was re reading online. So there was a news about a celebrity. Not a big celebrity. I won't name. I won't name the celebrity. There was a just a news item about a, a celebrity, a small-time celebrity, that uh, she has uh, she announced separation from her husband. And then there was a statement that's a very amicable uh, separation. We have been together. It's only a good statement. We spent some good times together. We cherish them. However, however, we need to go ahead, and now things are not working out. So we have decided to separate amicably. And of course, we will have joint custody of our only child, Mayek, which is our dog of four years. Okay. Now, one thing is, it's, it is so touching that here they are uh, separating, and but they are very concerned about their dog. Now, this is one level of animal, uh, animal love. There's another aspect of animal love in our country is that, uh, well, you say a word about the holy cow, or you you probably and and you, you it could lead to bloodshed, but then uh, nowhere in the world are so many stray cattle uh, as they exist in our our country. Is it animal welfare? Is it the love for uh, the animals? It is animal welfare, or is it is actually something which is uh, antithetical to what what animal welfare means? Animal welfare is very and. In times to come, uh, the consumer is also going to be guided by how the animal has been treated. I would say that animal welfare, if you go to our rural areas, uh, village areas, the way people keep their animals, the traditional farmers, especially, especially the elder generation, it is uh, seen to be believed the kind of love and affection they have for the world. You see, traditionally, it used to be considered in rural societies a sin to be selling milk. Milk was only for consumption at home and for to be shared with other things. So we have our own. Now what has happened is there have been certain standards of animal welfare, or I would say there have been some standards of 
livestock management in terms of how you keep animals which fall in the domain of animal welfare which have somehow as far as the some section of uh, urban liberal animal rights people are concerned have become the ultimate standards now you have to understand whether it is animal welfare or whether it is human welfare or any regulation for that matter the how strong or weak the regulation will be or what kind of regulation would be it evolves with the evolution in the society and it evolves with the with the human progress and the economic progress the industrial revolution of europe had scant respect for child rights or labor laws or any right. any kind of thing but now they have graduated to a stage where they say well you can't even keep poultry in battery cages they have to be kept in the in the open good enough we also have uh, our our customer if he wants that uh, he should have uh, eggs from the free range birds well there is plenty available uh, in the market but now you have to understand that in terms of animal welfare do we adopt the standards which probably say norway or uh, holland have adopted or do we adopt our own standards considering our own understanding of what animal welfare is and considering our own constraints of production that is that is one having said that animal welfare cannot and should not be compromised with but it has to be approached with a high degree of pragmatism i remember uh, we had a very serious issue once and once a very very uh, a prominent political leader who also was that time a cabinet minister in the union raised a major issue with me i was a secretary of the ministry of government in terms of uh, what was called was a blatant violation of uh, animal welfare issues and uh, in terms of ornamental fish that ornamental fish is kept in aquariums so fish doesn't have place to move etc so there should be complete ban on the trade of ornamental fish now one thing is logically you can argue yes fish is not supposed to remain in a small say 2 feet by 1 feet or 3 feet by 2 feet uh, aquarium in a limited area and spending the entire life uh, going uh, up and down uh, logically it sounds good but i would say if we start uh, imposing these kinds of standards of uh, animal welfare we probably may be shutting down the civilization you may be shutting 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 down the civilization i agree logically it is correct that nature did properly nature i don't know i i don't really understand nature much but probably nature did not uh, give uh, milk and to uh, the cow and buffalo for the human beings it gave milk for the cow's own uh, this thing now can uh, the entire history of civilization is uh, taming the nature if we if if we had not tamed the nature so probably you and i would not have been sitting here with the arts there would have been no what we call the the human progress so human progress has come with a cost and one of the cost probably is the animal welfare issues but then you have to also agree that we have graduated from being a hunter to keeping the livestock for meat now whether a hunter was a greater uh, votary of animal welfare or a poultry farmer is is anybody's uh, question animal welfare yes but we need to define the standards of animal welfare we had this issue of battery cages yeah some people went to the high courts etc and the battery cages uh, the high court decided battery cages were banned 
Now, you please understand if, suppose, today there is a blanket ban on battery cages as far as poultry is concerned. Perhaps if our poultry will take more than a decade to again uh, bounce, bounce back. And today, from being the second or third largest producer of eggs in the world, we may be reduced to the hundredth or, or so. And egg which a common man could get for four to six rupees uh, in the market would probably be 60 rupees uh, or so in the market. So we have to, we have to understand these uh, dynamics uh, of animal welfare also. So there have to be standards, but standards have to be taken, have to be established, uh, taken into consideration our uh, own uh, internal realities. And let us not be hypocrites. Let us not be hypocrites about uh, about about any animal welfare. People who talk of uh, well, who I would say uh, no criticism to anyone who's, whose heart bleeds for animals, etc. They also keep uh, any number of dogs in small flats, cooped up in a in a in, in a in a. 20, 20, 20 story flat and uh, when I go for my uh, uh, morning walk, I find that there are hundreds of, uh, then they ask their servants to take them out in the morning and uh, there's a scant respect for that animal who's, who's, who you say is a, is a part of the, the family. So, and I would say that if the animal welfare activists would be very, would do great service to this this country if they start keeping cows as, as, as pets, at least uh, some problem of our stray cattle will be will be solved. Plus, we have we have we are also fortunate. India, if, uh, I don't know whether how many people know about it or not, and I have a I have a heart to write about it. The the smallest cattle in the world belongs to India. The Punganur cattle of uh, Andhra, Andhra Pradesh from Chitru district of uh, Andhra Pradesh. Now that Punganur cattle is as small as a as a dog which you keep at uh, at home. Plus, it is much cuter cuter than a dog, and then it gives milk also, and it gives. Considering its size, it gives three to five liters of milk a day. Oh. cattle, and its milk is very high in fat. The fat content in Punganur cattle uh, milk is as high as a buffalo. Uh -huh. So start keeping that. That would be a, a great thing. So I, this is what my take on animal animal welfare is. Sorry if I may be sounding to be hostile to this concept of animal welfare. Yeah. It is not. It, it is not. I'm just saying it, it is practical, genuine, genuine and animal welfare would be. Managing your li entire livestock sector in a very, very scientific and a professional manner. That would be that would be the biggest service to animal welfare. I'll just give you a small example. You see, uh, in the, this was, I think, in the year 2018, uh, during one, my visit to the annual session of the World Animal Health Organization, we had a dialogue with several of these Middle East countries. And uh, basically, that the, the short of the entire discussion was that uh, during the, the, this... Uh, during the Eid, etc., there is uh, this sacrifice of live animals, etc., as a part of the religious ceremony. So I said, rather than looking from here or there, the we could be a good source of uh, supplying goats uh, to the Middle East uh, world. So we we had uh, it was a very I, I thought it was one of the one of the good initiatives. So we started the export of uh, live goats from India to the Middle East for this thing. Oh, there was such a hue and cry by animal rights activists, etc. I think only one or two shipments could go and thereafter the whole thing was stopped. That uh, Now, okay, that's, uh, perhaps uh, the animal rights activists had a point that uh, our goats were being sent there to be slaughtered and whatnot. But in any case, that goat would be slaughtered either here or there. But look at the, while protecting animal welfare in goats, whatever that animal welfare meant, look at the kind of damage you have done to the farmers whose lives and economies could have been transformed, that here is, 
he's he's a he's a he's a mic belongs to a migratory or a nomadic tribe he just manages to stay afloat with a few goats etc now his goats are an export commodity and this is a kind of return he could get and probably over a period of time we could have captured bigger markets in islamic countries etc where there's a huge requirement during certain 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 periods similarly we could well start uh, doing poultry of turkey etc only for the export markets and during christmas flood the flood the world with our the turkeys there but so animal rights uh, and animal welfare issues have to be balanced with the practicalities of livestock uh, management i hope right, i've given That's a, a very interesting perspectives i would say very very interesting perspectives <laughs> so so given the dynamic nature of this uh, animal husbandry and fishery sectors how do you envisage the future of these industries and what policy interventions would you suggest particularly in this uh, amrit kal see as i have already said i am i am very clear that the future is very bright however what we need to guard ourselves especially the government and the people who are involved in the policy making is that uh, world over these sectors are extremely dynamic and they are moving very fast and certain developments are taking place to which we are not reacting adequately or not reacting fast enough one secondly in in fact ideally what we should do is that before a development takes place we should have anticipated that and done a scenario building and looked looked at it i'll give you a small example of shrimp now look at the how how dynamic the situation and how fluid the situation has been till the year 2007 2010 sorry 2000 uh, yeah maybe 9 10 we were producing only about 70000 tons of shrimp per and now we are producing nearly 1 million tons number 9 and a half lakh tons so it's been nearly 800 to 900% growth in in one decade we were not even the first 50 big shrimp producing nations in the world at that point of point of time but we became the biggest shrimp producer in the world now that is where we committed the biggest mistake we said we have become the biggest and we kept uh, patting ourselves on the back we have been pushed to number 2 by a country as small as ecuador why we have it has happened during this period when we you see our problem is in our entire governance system we are only we are doing everything on a mission mode here is our mission so when our shrimp was in doldrums we took certain decisions to revive it very good decision in a mission mode we revived it and thereafter said our mission is complete whereas the other countries they kept experimenting our mission is complete okay how can we improve the species how can we improve the breed how can we increase the shelf life of our shrimp how can we give the consumer a better product we kept saying we are the best we are the best we are the best so now we are facing a serious crisis in terms of the markets secondly we also were very happy with the export market we said well whatever we produce gets absorbed in the export market we didn't realize that uh, volatility in the market of baltimore in usa is going to affect the farmer in bhimavaram in andhra pradesh this is something we did not foresee etc so now we are facing this kind of a crisis now why this is happening is 
Number one, not anticipating enough, not doing proactive planning. Second is government and industry both working in silos. They are not engaging with uh, each other. I'm many times surprised, uh, and you would uh, you are a witness to that. In many of these uh, industry meets, as for instance, we we met in Calcutta in terms of discuss various issues of poultry and what could be the adequate responses in terms of policies, strategies for the roadmap for future poultry, etc. But the, the representation from the government is, does, either does not, is not there or it's a lip service kind of a very formal kind of a representation without any seriousness. Recently, I participated in a, in a very, very, very highly engaged kind of discussion in terms of the crisis the shrimp sector was going on and how to solve. Now, there was a lot of churning of ideas and what needs to be done. Very extremely good suggestion and a roadmap was prepared for this thing. But who is to take it forward? The government. There's no one from, from there. So this engagement between the government and industry is very, very, very critical. Also because uh, in livestock sector, unlike several other sectors, it is the private individual, it is the industry bodies, etc., which are repositories of greater knowledge and experience than the scientists and professionals who are manning the policy positions. That is uh, something which we need to do uh, uh, in an utmost uh, seriousness. Shrimp, I only, only gave example, even in terms of our dairy, etc. Dairy, like typically what happens is uh, whenever there is a glut in the market and uh, there is not much offtake of milk or uh, milk products, typically the big companies or whoever has the, the muscle, Amul or some other, they convert the surplus liquid into powder milk or heat, something to store it. Now, but at the, at, the, at the end of the day, the conversion and storage also has a cost attached to it. Sure. And so you can't be holding on to the inventory many times. But when the inventory gets uh, beyond the manageable limits, they approach the government to give them some ex subsidy to export it. Then government gives them export subsidy or an export incentive to export it. So that means there's something wrong in terms of our competitive, uh, our competitiveness. So while we may be, uh, sit, maybe sitting in complacency that we are the biggest, we are the biggest. These are the threats wherein, despite being biggest, it could be the sectors which are our strength could actually work as setbacks in terms of our uh, economy is concerned. Plus, uh, we need to also address the issue of uh, our cultural dynamics uh, playing a role in our management of these, uh, these, these sectors. Now, we have an issue in terms of uh, the uh, religious beliefs and the social and cultural beliefs attached with the, with with cattle. Having said that, so we need to address the issue of uh, a large number of unproductive uh, cattle. The number of unproductive or less than optimally productive cattle in this country is much bigger than the productive cattle. So our cattle, instead of becoming an economic asset, is also becoming uh -huh. an economic liability in terms of power. So we need to have very adequate and appropriate strategies to address this issue also. One of the strategies adopted, which was a very good initiative by the government of India and needs to be supported was sex-sorted semen. So that only female cows. But now this, it cannot just be one of uh, intervention. It has to be now done at a mass scale and, and taken to its uh, logical conclusion. But after taking its logical conclusion, it also has to address the issue of the natural imbalance it may create that you only have female calves, you don't have bulls at all. So whether a population in the long run would be so all these these things need to be need to be well thought of and uh, 
and ad- address and lastly i think uh, i would come back to that addressing the issue of uh, supply chains at the end of the day it is food production we may say livestock fish but at the end of the day what we are doing is you are producing food so your entire policy should be i would produce high quality nutritional food which is affordable and reaches the table of the consumer in its original say state of nutrition and quality that is where where your the the, the ultimate what to say a policy statement should be mm-hmm. and then your intervention in terms of various schemes and various programs should center around uh, these things right sir thank you for uh, joining us today on ipr radio sir and as usual we've had a very very enlightening and engaging conversation with you thank you so much thank you thank you sanjoy thank you for this opportunity i'm looking forward to more such interactions in future absolutely sir absolutely thank you, thank you so much all the best thank you all the best thank you for listening to ipr radio we'll be back in two weeks with a new episode our podcasts are available on spotify soundcloud google podcast and apple podcast we're also available at www.iprradio.in